You're listening to Radio Free Edville. It's Edville on the radio for free. I'm Roy Thomas Padgham, and this is your Edville Gazette for Friday, January 22nd. 45,000-year-old cave painting found. Tormented artist unappreciated in his own time. By Missy Blinkpunk. Sulawesi, Indonesia. A prehistoric drawing of a wild pig has been discovered in a limestone cave in Indonesia. The drawing is believed to be the earliest known representational work of art in the world, according to Australian anthropologist Adam Brum. The significance of the discovery for our understanding of human evolution is inestimable, says Professor Brum, because the pig appears to be observing a fight or social interaction between two other warty pigs. The artistic significance of the painting, on the other hand, is already a matter of considerable dispute, as rival tribes of art critics chew and claw at each other in a manner highly reminiscent of a fight between warty pigs. The neo-modernists insist that whoever painted the boar demonstrated a clear commitment to form, boldly rejecting contemporaneous tendencies towards abstraction and thus affirming the highest ideals of human progress. Infuriated postmodernists have responded by claiming that the artist or artists obviously broke with existing stylistic conventions, challenging the boundaries of established taste and indeed reflecting an unprecedented self-awareness of style itself. A neo-minimalist critique has also emerged, asserting that the painting evinces a highly purified form of order, simplicity and harmony, because it does not pretend to be anything other than what it is. Asked their views on the discovery of the cave painting, local pig farmers Earl and Tawny Bingle told the Gazette that they don't know much about art, but they surely know something about hogs. Well, it seems to me the big story here is that the oldest human painting depicts a fat sow, said Mr Bingle. When Mrs Bingle and I set out for the barn, we often remark on how fine a thing it is to have fat sows. Quite right, as far as that goes agreed Mrs. Bingle. Now, I don't want to be contrary just for the sake of it, but it's plain to me that a woman painted that pig. You just know that if a man had been the first artist, he'd have painted some lady with a big bosom. Not much doubt about that. Quite right, mother, concurred Mr. Bingle. Quite right. Opinion, farmer. I don't really care to eat mealworms, do you? by Edna Farmer. Edville. Well, you'd have no reason to know this, but my youngest had a pet gecko for years. Every so often, we'd have to head out to the giant pet emporium to rustle up some mealworms, which are oat cuisine for reptiles. And a nice young lady covered in snake tattoos would shuck them into a baggie for us for about a nickel apiece. And I recall thinking that the life of a mealworm is not just nasty, brutish and short, but cheap too. So last week, the nice folks at the European Food Safety Agency approved mealworms for human consumption. Now, unless you've been hiding under a rock since the Middle Ages, you know that the Europeans love to tell the rest of us how to live. So it's no surprise that the Euro-vegans are promoting mealworms as an alternative to meat right in the heart of Wurst and Schnitzel country, Austria and Germany. 
And as usual, they're pitching bug-eating as virtuous by insisting that elsewhere in the world, including Africa and Central America, chewing on insect crisps, cooking with them, even mealworm burgers have long become norms. Now, unless I've just been too long out on the farm, it seems to me that eating mealworms is a solution in search of a problem. The FAO says eating insects can help tackle food insecurity. But the places facing the gravest food insecurity are already enjoying the delights of insect eating. And from where I sit, there's no limit to how many people from Africa and Central America would be only too happy to bug out of these places for Europe and North America if they could, leaving their insect cuisine behind. Maybe it's just me, but I don't think it'll be easy to persuade the world's richest people to live like the poorest. But just in case you're on board with the Insect Buffet Brigade and dreaming of a mealworm feast, you'll be pleased to know that European law no longer requires you to grind them into powder. You can now eat them on the hoof, like geckos do, perhaps with a nice avocado dip or a tasty wine sauce. Now that's progress, by golly. Badger. Unclaimed lottery prizes make people batty, by Dick Badger. Edville. Okay, I might as well say it right up front. I think wasting your hard-earned money on the lottery is totally fucking insane. But then, a lot of people say the same thing about smoking. And I'm willing to concede they've got a point. In fact, I sometimes think about that when I'm stuck in line behind some lottery addict down at the max, waiting around all day just to pick up milk and some smokes. But unless you're living like a monk, you know we all have one thing in common. We're being taxed up the yin-yang on smokes and booze and lotto tickets, which is a constant reminder that we're all bad people, captive to our vices, and we have to pay. And in a country with a well-earned reputation for conformity and public shaming, that's a surefire recipe for resentment. So as I see it, disappointment is baked right into the whole lottery experience. You spend your life in some dreamy fog about cashing in, living on a yacht maybe, or buying some mansion in Florida. Or maybe just paying off your crap truck loan. And every Friday, the most you win is five bucks or a free ticket for next week's draw. And most weeks, you don't win shit. But what makes it worse, way worse, is that by now, everyone knows about some local who's had a big score, which reinforces the impression that sooner or later, you will too. And even though the odds are as stacked against you as ever, you can't do basic math when you're blissed out thinking about moving into that Muskoka cottage or getting that new Harley CVO Limited with the sand dune finish. So you're hooked. Which brings me around to this dipshit in Reutlingen, Germany. In 2017, this dude bought a winning ticket anonymously, which means no one has a clue who he is. It's worth $13.8 million dollars and on New Year's Eve, it expired. Even if the guy showed up tomorrow with his sorry-ass ticket in his hand, his winnings have already been rolled back into the pot for future prizes, according to German lottery officials. Okay, so this dude could already be so rich he doesn't need the dough. Or maybe he died. It's possible. But more likely, he just lost his ticket, and then he forgot he ever had it which is going to make every lottery addict in every corner of the world totally fucking batty. And that's just no way to live. 
Peterborough Ponders Adult Massage Parlour, but no sex, please, by Heavy Bunt. Well, now, here's some exciting news for all of us who enjoy a nice, non-therapeutic, non-sexual body rub during these stressful times. A rezoning application has been submitted to the city of Peterborough to open an adult massage parlour, but without sex or alcohol. Which begs the question, uh, what's adult about it? Now, I know these places cause a lot of concern for folks worried that properly loosened and stretched individuals will congregate on public streets, spreading their serenity like a second pandemic. To say nothing of the worry that exposed customers or improperly covered staff might share infected droplets. So, of course, suitable protection must be in place. But as one apparently sympathetic city councillor has observed, the parlour will fulfil a demographic need, among others. Speaking of demographic needs, what I'd like to see is some consideration of the underserved female population. Surely a few practitioners, buff and burly, like Jason Momoa or The Rock, could manipulate and knead the deep tissue of stressed-out women. Who couldn't benefit from increased blood circulation and mental and physical relaxation? Massage parlours fall into the category of adult entertainment, and frankly, I can think of nothing more entertaining than a Vin Diesel-esque monsieur doing free-flowing, gliding motion, and perhaps some interpretive dance between the effleurage and petrissage. One can only imagine what enjoyment could come from beefy hands dripping aromatic oil, providing friction and release of the daily tension from which we all suffer. Is it anything less than the service all we multitasking, responsibility-juggling women folk are desperately in need of right now? Kids' Corner. Can you, like, adopt old people? By Crystal BB Diamonds 16. Edville. Hey fam, so guess what? My mum said I could use my cell and keep writing for the GZ. Because, you know, this is for school credit because Ms. P said my writing is trash. No idea where she came up with that. And I was like, totes getting my vibe on when this old guy, like really old, like maybe 40 or something, IDK, bro, yikes is into me and starts saying something. But I was jamming and it was kind of hard to hear because the music was bumping. But he was so nice. I wonder if he, like, totally escaped an old person prison. Or if he needs a new sleep spot. Can you fill me in, fam? TTYL. How old do you think I am? Maybe 30. 30? Close. 80. 80. 86. It's going really well for you. Seniors Corner. The Importance of Intergenerational Dialogue by Buster Fogg. Brighton. Well, I related this story to the missus because she's real big on the idea of intergenerational dialogue, which is what she calls it when you try to talk to these dipshit teenagers. So she says, Bussy, that's nice. You got to put that in the paper. So I was down at the skateboard park and there were some kids hanging around smoking some of that weed that Trudeau legalized. And I have to tell you, most of them weren't skating or doing much of anything from what I could tell you. But I guess they've seen me around. And once, I scared the shit out of some out-of-town arsehole who was making trouble for one of them. So it's kind of like I'm in the club. So one of them, Kristin, something or other, starts up a conversation with me. 
At least that's what I thought was happening. But I couldn't hear fuck all because I hate wearing my goddamn hearing aids, especially in the cold weather. So I left the damn things at home. But this Kristin, she's got some earplugs wired straight into her skull like some robot. And even though I couldn't hear a word she was saying, I could hear the bang, bang, bang of whatever so-called music she was listening to. And I thought, that's got to be damn loud in her head, for Christ's sake. So that's it. That's my intergenerational dialogue with the local kids. Special series, Life in the Man Cave. Tips on preventing a cold brew going bad by Jeff Mullet Jr. Who doesn't like to crack open a cold one when they're hanging around changing oil or forced to attend a family function? I had this idea I might make my own beer once and I learned a few things that I thought our homebrew aficionados might find helpful. So here's a few tips if you're brewing your own beer. Tip one. Don't flavour it like a dessert. Amy made me have dinner with her cousin, and he asks if I want to try his home brew. I'm stoked until he tells me it's mango lassie lager. What in the sweet mother of all that is holy is a mango lassie? And second of all, what's it doing in a beer? It's just not compatible. I'll get some wicked side-eye from Gary, you know, my idiot brother with the ice truck at the bottom of Lake Scugog, who still hasn't gotten his doors out of my garage, when I drink one of those Rattlers with a citrus flavour. But hey, don't judge. When you're out on the golf course and the sun is shining and it's before noon, a Rattler is the perfect breakfast drink. Like those mimosas that Amy likes. But you don't need to be the Queen of England to drink a Rattler. Tip 2. Don't flavour it like a meal. Do flavour it like other drinks. You want scotch? You want whiskey? You want beer? You might as well mix it all up together in a single can or bottle and save yourself some time. These kinds of home brews and craft brews go great with barbecued pork or smoked wings or beef brisket. You get the idea. Tip three. Sours are gross. Just saying. Tip four. Funky beer smells are an indication that all's not right with your can. I mean, it's kind of a rule of thumb, isn't it? If something's smelling funky, there's probably something wrong with it, especially if it's coming from your can. Tip 5. If your beer smells like cat pee, that's nasty. I always get Gary to take a big whiff. I say something like, hey Gary, this smells really good, you gotta smell. Uh, And then that guy falls for it every time. I'm not kidding. I can do it twice in one night and he'll do it. But seriously, cat pee smell can mean one of two things. It's a sour or it's contaminated. If it's a sour, dump it out. If it's contaminated, dump it out. Tip six. If there's a cheesiness to it, Amy says to first put your socks back on and if the smell persists, then it's the beer that's gone bad. Or maybe it's a new cheddar-flavoured stout. Stranger things have happened. Remember, friends, never show up without a beer and never leave with the beer you brought if you want to be invited back. That's what Amy always says, and she's usually right. But don't tell her I said that. A couple Charles Bukowskis? A couple of Brustoyevskis? Maybe a Mike Brugoslowski? Perhaps a Teddy Bruski? World Drunken Arthur Returns Excalibur by Hugo Blue Westfield, Massachusetts Cindy P. Gaylord 
chair of Westfield Historical Commission, received a cryptic call three weeks before Christmas from an anonymous man wishing to discuss a matter of historical significance. These days, who knows what that could mean? She found out, after guaranteeing the shadowy man's anonymity, that once upon a time, spring 1980, the young man, a modern King Arthur, former soldier turned student, while out on a drunken bender with his friends, came upon the statue of General William Shepard. At seeing the fellow soldier, and perhaps fancying himself a future king, he clutched the old general's sword and heaved the blade with strength enough to pry sword from stone. Clearly, he was the chosen one. Now, 40 years later, Arthur found himself overwhelmed with remorse at having stolen the blade, and from a fellow soldier at that. In a tearful exchange with Gaylord, he explained how guilty he felt upon reflection, and he now desired to return his Excalibur, arranging to drop it off at the ladies for safekeeping. How great would it be if she lived on a lake? Arthur hopes the story will remind others you can always correct mistakes of the past. The sword now rests in the local museum. They have replaced it already, awaiting its next drunken champion. Brexit is here. Now surrender your sandwich by Hugo Blue. Rotterdam. Travellers from the UK were somewhat bewildered when Dutch customs agents at the Hook of Holland ordered them to hand over their ham sandwiches before entering. No, they weren't just hungry. The sandwich embargo is part of new Brexit regulations which specifically prohibit any product originating from an animal from entering the EU for fear it may contain infectious pathogens. Now that the UK is on its own, who knows what kind of madness is going on there? Hey England, what's happening in your cupboards? You are no longer allowed to bring certain foods to Europe, like meat, fruit, fish, that kind of stuff. Dairy... Certain cereals and other fissionable materials were also placed on the embargo list. Can't I just keep the bread? pleaded one cheeky UK traveller. No, you may not keep the bread. Welcome to Brexit, sir, replied the officer. While the EU appears to be stealing the UK's lunch, critics note the policy is likely to cause friction along the border. But at least they aren't shaking down British passengers for their lunch money. For now, anyway. I'm Roy Thomas Padgham, and this has been your Edville Gazette for Friday, January 22nd. Join us again next week.